to another episode of No Trash, Just Truth. No Trash, Just Truth is a podcast of Proverbs 910 Ministries. We're your hosts, Rose Spiller and Chris Paxson. Welcome back. One of the benefits of doing the Minor Prophets books in chronological order is that we get a better orientation of them. And knowing when their ministry occurred definitely helps with putting them in the context and understanding who their original audience was. So far, we've looked at the pre-exilic minor prophets, meaning those whose ministry was before Israel and or Judah went into exile into Assyria and Babylon. And those were Joel, Obadiah, Amos, Jonah, Hosea, and Micah. And we've looked at the exilic minor prophets, those whose ministry occurred during the exile of Israel and Judah. And those were Nahum, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk. Well, today we start with the post-exilic minor prophets. Those are the prophets whose ministry was after Israel and Judah were released from captivity. And first up of those is Haggai. There's three of them, and he's first. Around 612 BC, Babylon overthrew Assyria. By that time, most of the 10 tribes of the northern nation of Israel had either died or they intermarried with pagans and were swallowed up into the pagan people groups. But God did save a remnant from each of the tribes. And when the southern nation of Judah was overthrown by Babylon, they intermixed with their brothers and sisters from Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Then, just as God promised through the prophet Jeremiah, after being in captivity in Babylon for 70 years, God raised up the Medo-Persian Empire, who overthrew Babylon in 539 BC. And from within the Medo-Persian Empire, God raised up a pagan king, King Cyrus, to fulfill his plans for the Israelites. King Cyrus was prophesied about in a few places in scripture, including in the book of 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Daniel, and in Isaiah. Isaiah 44 verse 28 is one example. It says, Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So just as God used pagan kings to punish Israel and Judah, he also used a pagan king to restore his people. After Cyrus overthrew Babylon and took the throne, he freed the exiles and he allowed them to return to the promised land and to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem that King Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed. He sent the treasures that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen out of the temple back with the returning Israelites, and he even adds in some of his own treasure to help him rebuild. While King Cyrus was out leading his army to overthrow other nations, he appointed other kings to reign, such as Artaxerxes and Darius. Darius was a regent at the time of Haggai. This is not the same Darius from the book of Daniel. In fact, the Bible mentions three different kings named Darius. So Cyrus freed God's people from exile, and they were free to return to the promised land. They were no longer divided between the northern nation of Israel and southern nation of Judah. They were once again a united people called the Israelites. This is the group that Haggai speaks his prophecy into in roughly 520 BC. All of Haggai's prophecies took place during only a four-month period. And we don't know a lot about Haggai or his genealogy, but we know that his prophecies were to the people who had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. 
And even more specifically, in Haggai 1.1, Haggai calls himself the prophet of Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, and of Joshua, the high priest in Jerusalem. And that's because while Haggai's prophecies were for the people, they were mostly directed to Zerubbabel and Joshua. These two guys were good, godly men who were devoted to God and devoted to rebuilding the temple, but they ran into a lot of obstacles, first from the Samaritans, who were the intermixed people of the Israelites and the pagans, but they also ran into problems with the pagan government officials who were put in place in Judah, and even King Artaxerxes, who was the king of Persia, who ordered them to halt rebuilding the temple at first. Now, later, he not only let them resume, he gave them treasures too out of his own treasury. He gave it to Ezra so they could fund it. And we see all of this stuff going on in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Yeah. And when Haggai and Zechariah, who we're going to look at next, appear on the scene, the people had rebuilt the foundation of the temple and had constructed the altar. But then the people stopped working on the temple and had instead taken care of building their own houses. 17 years have gone by since any work's been done on the temple. God was angry and he tells Haggai in Haggai 1 verses 2 to 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? God's angry that they bailed on rebuilding his house to take care of building their own houses and making themselves comfortable. They even justify it by saying that it just wasn't the right time to finish the temple. Well, their rationale was that because they had seen opposition in the rebuilding from the Samaritans and from the government leaders and even from King Artaxerxes himself for a while, that must mean that it wasn't the right time to build. Rather than facing opposition and standing firm in what God had clearly told them to do, they acquiesced and they took the easy way out given up on the rebuilding of the temple and just concerned themselves with their own lives and their own well-being. That was lots less controversial for them to do. Without a doubt. In the book of Deuteronomy, God is firm about his dwelling place. He says to his people in Deuteronomy 12, 5 to 9, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all the tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contributions that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. So Moses told the people these words before they entered the promised land for the second time. The point was that God is to be worshipped how he chooses to be and where he chooses to be. Now, eventually, the tabernacle Moses was talking about would become the temple built by King Solomon, but they were both foreshadowing Jesus, God's ultimate dwelling place with his people, and the ultimate way he blessed his people. Right. So looking back, we see how significant the temple was, but even though the Israelites didn't have hindsight to know that the temple would transition to Jesus, they had enough prophecy and enough commands from God to know that the temple did symbolize God's presence with them. 
the fact that they neglected rebuilding it and left it in ruins was symbolic of their relationship with God. They were more concerned about living their best lives now, as we would say today, and building their own houses and restoring their own material wealth and living in peace with everybody around them than doing what God commanded. This temple lying untouched for 17 years is much more about the Israelites' devotion to and relationship with God than it is about a physical building. It was easier to put God aside than to face conflict and hostility with the people around them. And sadly, Chris, this has been a reoccurring theme throughout history. You can point to any moment in history when Christians were being persecuted and or ostracized by the secular world. And while you definitely see brave men and women standing firm in God's word, refusing to compromise the gospel or God's precepts, regardless of the cost, there are many who acquiesced like the Israelites on the grounds that living at peace with people was what we're called to do. I just saw a man named Dr. Kevin Young, not to be confused with Kevin D. Young, but he's a pastor and a supposed early church scholar, and he's part of the Gospel Coalition. He put out a couple tweets. One tweet was, when the Bible comes between me and my neighbor, I will choose my neighbor. And another one said, the Bible is not God. Jesus is God. We do not worship the Bible. We worship Jesus. You can know Jesus without the Bible. The Bible is not necessary for faith. That is all. So this guy's a perfect example of a so-called Christian who's trying to live with one foot in God's kingdom and one foot in the world. And maybe there's not even one foot in God's kingdom, but that's never acceptable to God. Never. No. And like you said, this has been the case throughout history, and it's going to continue to be the case throughout history. Today, we see the Episcopal and the Methodist denominations and others claiming faith in Jesus and condoning LGBTQ and social justice agendas. They're denying the inerrancy of scripture, and they're even rewriting some of God's words so that they can be appealing to the secular world while still claiming to be Christian. Happens a lot. Yeah. We see from Haggai that God does not take this disobedience lightly. He reprimanded the Israelites in Haggai's time for putting themselves and their own well-being before their relationship with God. But make no mistake, while God did promise them that they would not be overthrown and oppressed by a pagan nation again, that didn't mean that he wouldn't discipline them and send them consequences for their gross sin. And we see that's exactly what God did. He tells Haggai in Haggai 1 verses 5 and 6, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. During this time when Haggai is ministering, there were droughts, which led to really bad harvest. God is telling Haggai that the Israelites letting the temple sit untouched while they looked after their own interest and the drought that was going on in the land are connected. God says in Haggai 1, 9 to 11, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house, therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, 
on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Now, sometimes when there's a disasters like droughts, hurricanes, tornadoes, and the like, it makes people wonder, is God doing it as a punishment? And maybe sometimes it is, but sometimes it might not be. He might have another purpose for it. But here, God is clearly saying that the severe drought the Israelites were experiencing, which had affected both the land and the hills and had prevented them from getting grain, wine, oil, produce, had caused people and livestock to suffer. God is saying, yeah, that's punishment. It's punishment for leaving my temple undone. And it's a direct mm -hmm. result of your sin. Yeah. Now, the good news is that Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the remnant of God's people listened to Haggai's words, which were, of course, God's words, because we know Haggai was one of God's true prophets. The people humbled themselves before God, and Haggai 1, verse 12, says that they feared God. As a result of their repentance, God gives Haggai another message for the people. Haggai 1, 13 to 14 says, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And that's the end of those two verses. Chris, I love this so much. And there's an important truth that we need to recognize here, but we shouldn't blow past that first line that you read saying, when God says, I'm with you. Before God put Israel and Judah into captivity, he warned them over and over and over and over to stop the idolatry and turn back to him. And they didn't listen. And he did exactly what he warned them he would do. And he could have left them all there to die in captivity. And he would have been completely justified in doing so. But instead, he frees them from their oppressors and lets them return to the land that he had promised he would give them. And that was a land, they had polluted it with their idolatry, their syncretism, and even their pagan worship. So they returned to the land and before you know it, they're at it again. Now, they're not necessarily serving pagan gods this time. They're serving themselves, which is just another form of idolatry. But it's still yeah. idolatry. God disciplines them, gives them the drought. And when they're contrite, he restores them again. As Isaiah 66, 2 says, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. We've said this many times. Scripture clearly shows that God sometimes uses calamity to discipline his children and bring them back to him. And the beautiful thing is that as soon as we repent of our sin, he's there with open arms to embrace us. That is just blows my mind. I know, because it's a constant state, at least that I find myself in. I won't speak for anybody else, but I think most of us are there. Yeah. And if you really meditate on God's mercy and goodness to his people, it is absolutely mind-blowing. And it's a good reason why we need to understand the Old Testament. If the first book of the Bible you ever read was Revelation, you'd probably be like, whoa, what is it with this angry God? He's not even giving people a chance. But when you start back in Genesis and then you read all the way through to Revelation, you see passages over and over like this one in Haggai, where as soon as the people turn back to God, he's merciful and gracious and extremely good to them. As Psalm 51, 17 says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, 
a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. Love that. Yep. And the other crucial truth we need to see is that God stirred up the spirit of Joshua, Zerubbabel, and the people. Remember, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit didn't dwell in God's people all the time, possibly an exception or two. But by and large, the Holy Spirit did not dwell in people continually. Instead, the Holy Spirit came and went filling people to strengthen them and give them what they needed at that time to fulfill God's purpose. The fact that after God stirred up their spirits, they came and worked on the house of the Lord shows that apart from God, we can't do anything. We can do nothing. We don't even have the desire to do anything for the kingdom of God. We'd just be working on our own stuff, our own houses. Yeah, exactly. Jesus blatantly declares this truth in John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And Paul tells the Corinthians this in 2 Corinthians 3, 16 to 18. Whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the spirit and wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. So what emboldens Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the people to continue working on the temple despite opposition was the Spirit of God. Without the Holy Spirit, none of us would have the strength or courage to face persecution and stand firm in the truth of God and his word. The only reason, the only reason any of us can abide in the vine and bear fruit is because of the salvific and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Amen to that. In Haggai chapter two, which the book is only two chapters long, God acknowledges that for the people who had seen the original temple built by Solomon, this rebuilt temple paled in comparison. John Calvin said, inasmuch as the old people who had seen the splendor of the former temple considered this temple no better than a cottage, all their zeal evaporated. But God tells them to be strong and continue with the rebuild. And he promises them that even though this rebuilt temple does pale in comparison to the splendor of the temple Solomon had built, and here's a, he, this is what he says. He says, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So how could this temple, which pales in comparison to Solomon's temple, be greater in glory? Because like we alluded to earlier, the temple always pointed to Jesus, the ultimate place where God dwelled among his people. As John 1, 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus makes it crystal clear that the temple always foreshadowed him. He says in John 2, 19 to 22, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. 
And of course, being in Jesus brings about a peace that transcends everything else, which is why God's promise to the people of Haggai's time that the latter temple will bring peace is true. Exactly. Exactly. God then gives Haggai words about the uncleanness of people and what makes them unclean. Being unclean has always been man's problem. Sin taints us. It taints us everywhere. It makes us unclean. And being unclean, we can't stand in the presence of God. And we don't just commit sin. Sin is inborn in us. So that means everything we do is tainted with sin. Everything we do is unclean. As Isaiah 64, 6 says, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And almost all Bible translations clean this word up. But the original Hebrew is that all of our righteous deeds are like menstrual garments. So how unclean is that? So even our very best without God is unclean because it's tainted with sin. Apart from God, we're under the law and we all fail under it. That's why we're all unclean. Right. And because of their sin and uncleanness, specifically putting themselves first and not rebuilding the temple, God sent a drought. And as Haggai 2 verse 19 says, indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But God now tells the people, but from this day on, I will bless you. Now that they repented, gotten their priorities straight and set out to restore God's temple, they were putting God first. And that was his promise to them. And what does Jesus say happens when we put God first? Well, in Matthew 6, verses 28 to 33, he says, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The book of Haggai ends with God telling Haggai to speak to Zerubbabel, who was the governor of Judah, and tell him, and here's what it says, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. In 2 Samuel 7, we see God giving David the Davidic covenant. This was a covenant that God made with David, who was from the tribe of Judah, and he was promising that David's line would never fail to have someone sit on the throne as king. Even when Israel split into two nations, the southern nation of Judah always had a descendant of King David as king. While they were in exile, they were under the authority of the kings of Babylon and then the kings of Persia after the Medo-Persians overthrew Babylon. But now God's people are back in the promised land and God is choosing Zerubbabel to lead the people and continue the Davidic covenant. And ultimately, 
David and Zerubbabel foreshadowed Jesus. He's the signet ring, the chosen signet ring. And like I said, they foreshadowed Jesus, whose earthly parentage was also from the tribe of Judah, and who would be the perfect final king of God's people and who would reign forever. Yeah, we see this first promise back in Genesis 49, 10, when Jacob is blessing each of his sons. And he says to Judah, his son, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. And we see Jesus' fulfillment of it in the book of Revelation, where Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. And Revelation eleven fifteen says, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. I just love how it goes one end of the book to the other. Me too. It blows my mind every time it gives me goosebumps. But getting back to Haggai, the book of Haggai was directed at a very different people group from us during a very different time than we live in. But there's a message in it for us. With the help of the Holy Spirit, Jesus and his word needs to be first and foremost in our life. We need to seek and glorify him in everything that we do. Nothing we might face, even death, is worth compromising his word for. Jesus is due all the glory we can give him because he's God. And rather than leave us as the hopeless, sinful wrecks who can do nothing of any real value, Jesus paid the ultimate price to save us from ourselves and from God's wrath. How could we possibly give him any less than all of ourselves? Amen. And that's a good place to end. Have a blessed day, everybody.